Peter John, professor of philosophy here at Lower Columbia College. He will be taking somewhat of a skeptic's perspective regarding the question at hand this evening. And to my left here, we have Dr. Phil Fernandez, who is adjunct professor with Ferriston Theological Seminary and founder and president of the Institute for Biblical Defense. Ladies and gentlemen, is there enough evidence to believe in the existence of the Judeo-Christian God? Is there a God? It's a question that has been discussed, debated, hashed over for years, centuries. And tonight we will continue the discussion. Dr. John has agreed to commence this evening's exchange of ideas. Would you please welcome Dr. Peter John. Just conveying my thoughts coherently, I'll simply read to you. I'll try not to make it too dull. Um, the question, I take it, is is there sufficient evidence to believe in the Judeo-Christian God? And I would say yes, of course. There is enough evidence to believe this and many other things besides. The beauty and the tragedy of the will to believe is that it doesn't require much evidence, especially when it is to our advantage to believe something. Senator Joseph McCarthy believed on the basis of very little evidence that communists were everywhere. Europeans believed on the basis of vir virtually no evidence that it was their manifest destiny to inhabit the North American continent. Because it was convenient, many 19th century Europeans and Americans believed that white people are superior to black people. Because it was profitable, some Californians during the Second World War chose to believe that Japanese Americans were the enemy and of necessity had to be put in concentration camps. So when confronted with this busy, confusing, and often dangerous world, a world in which there is no apparent permanent consolation for our mental and physical suffering and our eventual death, it requires precious little evidence to believe that there is something, call it what you will, Allah, Buddha, Krishna, Jesus, Yahweh, God, Marduk, Zeus, Jupiter, Gaia, which will explain and with any luck console us for our suffering. Yes, there is sufficient evidence to believe, people, children especially, have believed stranger things than this on even less evidence. But is belief our actual concern? Aren't we really concerned with what is true? Isn't the actual question this, does God truly exist? With respect to this question, we are in a much more difficult position, essentially because we are too ignorant to know with any degree of certainty. As it stands, we are barely smart enough to fix our cars, cook a decent meal, behave decently towards each other, grow healthy tomatoes, or extract power from a river without killing everything in it. Do we have what it takes to know that there is a God? Again, certainly we have what it takes to believe, but can we know? One of the most common pieces of evidence for supporting the claim that God exists is that things themselves exist. You know, you and me and furniture, trees. If there is a world and a cosmos and things in that cosmos, where did it all come from? 
The evidence that things exist, however, amounts to little more than the observation that since in our limited experience particular things have a cause, everything in general must have a cause. This is known as the cosmological argument for the existence of God. There are several important flaws with this argument, at least one of which David Hume pointed out two centuries ago. Hume pointed out that there is nothing in our experience to necessarily refute the possibility that there can be an infinite string of causes. Just because in our experience things appear to have a starting point, although I must say they don't usually appear to have a single starting point, um, this does not mean that the cosmos had to have a single starting point. The cosmological argument, however, can be tackled more directly and simply than this. Let me accept, for the sake of argument, that since things in our experience appear to have causes, so too the cosmos must have a cause. We'll just accept that. I do not know what that cause is, so I'll just call it X, or the prime mover, or the first cause, or if you find it more consoling, which many people do, God. The argument then appears to boil down to the assumption of a first cause, followed by the admission of total ignorance about what the first cause might be, followed by the totally unwarranted conclusion that the first cause is something we call God, or X. Even if someone were willing to accept this line of reasoning, how then might you leap to the conclusion that the God happens to be the Judeo-Christian Muslim God? I attached Muslim there because really um, Muhammad did carry on with that tradition and he views Abraham and Moses and Jesus as really just prophets leading up to the ultimate revelation, which of course is an Islamic revelation, but uh, we usually don't think about that. Another famous argument the teleological or design argument is an argument by analogy and goes something like this. All about us we see considerable evidence of order and perhaps even purpose in the world. Crystals, spheres, physical laws, the symmetry of our own bodies, the intricate ordered design of parts of our bodies such as our eyeball. Where did all this order come from? One answer is that if you find order, there must be someone or something that created that order. Or invoking a famous example, if you discover a watch lying in a field, you might safely conclude that it did not occur spontaneously, but rather that there had to be a watchmaker. But there are at least two things to observe about this argument. First of all, the analogy of the watch and the watchmaker is just that, an analogy. An analogy always involves a logical leap, for it involves a comparison of two things which may be similar but are not identical. So you might find an analogy for an insurance executive by pointing to a shark, but of course they are not identical. At what point, one must consider, does the analogy go awry? At what point does the watch watchmaker, eye, eyeball maker analogy collapse? One replies that the analogy collapses immediately. We can draw an analogy between an insurance executive and a shark, or a watch and an eyeball, since they are all within some realm of our experience. However, in what sense can we draw an analogy between something that does, does exist within our experience and something that does not exist within our experience? What sense does it make to draw an analogy between a watchmaker and an eyeball maker? Who on earth has ever encountered an eyeball maker? Again, if you believe you have encountered this alleged eyeball maker, that is nice. 
However, it can scarcely count as evidence for someone who has never experienced it. And again, as with the cosmological argument, even if you do make this analogical leap, if you find it emotionally or psychologically satisfying to do so, it is important that you notice something. The analogy contains nothing specific about the identity of the something, the what's it, that created the cosmos. So you might posit an eyeball maker, but how then do you reach the conclusion that it happens to be a Jewish or a Christian or an Islamic eyeball maker? This brings us to the crux of the matter. It is possible that a single something exists that is the cause of what is, but then anything is possible. The question is, is it probable? Moreover, is it probable that the identity of this something is consistent with the attributes ascribed to it by Jews, Christians, and Muslims? It is probable that the sun will rise in the morning, that this is November, that my name is Peter, and that we are all human beings except for the dog and cat that might be listening. It is possible that we're all dreaming. It is possible that we are all dreaming or hallucinating and that none of this is true. Possible, but not probable. Working humbly, empirically, from our senses and experience, we accept some things are more probable than others. Why, you might ask, can't we do the same with respect to God? You might say, well, in my experience, I believe that God is probable. Very well, but I have met people who believe that women are not equal to men. Ought we to take these people's beliefs as truths and use them as the foundation of moral and legal codes? I have met others who were convinced that one race or culture was superior to, to another. Should we take these beliefs as probable truths and have them serve as the foundation for the way we structure society? One's personal experiences can convince one of any number of things. We need, however, to base space truths, truth claims, on something more than an individual's or even a collection of individuals' experiences. Belief is a personal matter, and it should remain such. Truth, however, is a public matter. Truth claims must be testable or analyzable. Before we legislate judgment about how others may live and act or about how public money ought to be spent, we must wonder whether our judgments are rooted in anything more than the will to believe. For armed only with that, there is no limit to the damage we can do. If we confuse possible belief with probable truth, we risk moving too hastily to making our belief beliefs serve as the basis for the institutionalization of moral and legal codes. As it stands, many of our laws, customs, and moral rules are grounded in the assumption not only of a God, but a very specific God. Our ideas about human rights, women's rights, the meaning of life, the human relation to the environment are rooted in such assumptions. Is it possible that our assumptions and the laws, customs, etc., that are rooted in them are wrong? Yes, it is quite possible. For example, consider the damage that untested belief might do. One critique of the Judeo-Christian belief characterizes this tradition as a cult, merely a cult worshiping a sky god, a god that's not here on earth, a god who's up there somewhere, a god who instructs humanity to, as it states in Genesis, at least one in several English translations, to subdue the earth. The historian Lynn White asks us to consider the ecological consequences of such a conception of God. 
If God is above the earth and not, as some cultures have believed, on or in the earth, in the rivers, in the clouds, the trees, the animals, how will we treat these things? We treat them as little more than as something to be killed and consumed. God, after all, is not in the world but above it. What we do to the earth cannot matter that much. After all, we're going to a better place. The consequences of the sky god cult, that is, Judeo-Christian belief, is that inheritors of the Judeo-Christian tradition eventually destroy the earth's ecology. And I submit that the Columbia River and adjacent areas may indeed be a precise illustration of White's hypothesis. But this, admittedly, is only a, an historical hypothesis. We should not leave to make it the foundation of morality and law any more than we should employ some speculation about some transcendental deity. Unfortunately, Judeo-Christian beliefs and speculations already serve as the foundation for much of our moral and legal system. Judeo-Christian belief entails all sorts of practical consequences. Believers attribute all sorts of laws and dictates to this sky god, dictates about what is right and wrong, good and bad, about who can have sex with whom, what type, when and where, what can be read, what can be seen, what can be thought. All of this and more shaped by assumptions about what might only possibly be true. Before a belief, or a set of beliefs can assume such authority over human lives, it really needs to be something more than possible. It needs to be highly probable. It is probably true that human beings need food and water. Of this much you could probably persuade the most determined skeptic. But that we are born into sin, that there is another life after this one, that certain forms of behavior are absolutely condemned in the eyes of some metaphysical agency called God, these are highly speculative claims, and we must remain skeptical. Certainly, we should not be basing our moral and, by implication, our legal codes on such speculations. How am I for time? Twelve minutes. Thirteen minutes right now. Into it or thirty minutes? Into it. Okay. If anything, indeed, the idea of a transcendent God and transcendental realm wherein we will discover the true meaning of our lives and live forever, this idea seems to be among the most improbable claims. For a start, there, the whole notion is tremendously anthropocentric, that is, sort of human-centered. In a universe this size in which we are, to quote the daunting defender of the total perspective vortex, an insignificant dot on an insignificant dot, is it plausible that our species is the exclusive focus of divine plans? The same doubt was posed by the physicist, late physicist Richard Feynman. It doesn't seem to me, Feynman observed, that this fantastically marvelous universe, this tremendous range of time and space and different kinds of animals and all these atoms with all their motions and so on, all this complicated thing can merely be a stage so that God can watch human beings struggle for good and evil, which is the view that religion has. The stage is too big for the drama. Why, in other words, create a world of such subtlety and complexity in a universe of such dimensions to enact a drama about some apes attempting spiritual salvation? My main objection lay elsewhere, however. The Judeo-Christian tradition harbors within itself a dualistic assumption about the nature of things. There is matter, and then there is spirit. What if instead of regarding this world, as many of my Christian friends seem to 
as something we have to escape, we learn instead to look upon it as the end in itself. What if instead of waiting for a miracle, expecting a miracle, we opened our eyes and began to notice that the very existence of the world and what is in it, not least of all ourselves, is itself quite miraculous. I have never tried to impose this idea as the absolute truth with an attendant ray of moral and legal implications. It is, however, a point of belief. I believe the world and most things in it to be quite mind-staggeringly miraculous. Well, you might wonder, who caused the miracle? Our minds might race back, cause behind cause, a blossom arose to the water and light and soil that allows it, and where did they come from? Star stuff, born of what? Atoms formed of subatomic matter and burgeoning star systems? Then before that, what? Well, who knows? If you find it consoling, plug in the equation of the gods, or, to quote another Feynman phrase, the god of the gaps. This is Feynman's phrase referring to the human tendency to invoke God at the instant things become too difficult to explain or to think about. In the instant that there are gaps in our understanding, we invoke God. We fill in the gaps in our understanding and reasoning with the greatest variable of them all, the great X, um, God. We use God as some sort of metaphysical spackling or putty or paste, smearing it all over the world in the places we find doubt and confusion and uncertainty. Enough said for the moment. I might just add to the purpose of dialogue that my position is not really atheistic, nor is it agnostic in the original sense of that word. I do not reject the possibility of a God, nor am I awaiting the evidence of a God. Rather, I am of the mind that we are in no position to know, with any degree of understanding, let alone certainty, about such things. I suppose you might call it skeptical, but even that is not quite right, for it implies that I spend a lot of time examining the evidence about all of this, and I don't. Indeed, this discussion that we are presently engaged in, or should I say about shortly to be engaged in, was not my idea. Such a thing would never really occur to me. I am here because I was asked to come, and because I enjoy thinking, and because, as an article of belief, um, I believe that thought, dialogue, and polite discourse about significant matters is worthwhile. Thanks. College, Dr. Peter John and Farriston Theological Seminary for the opportunity to share my views on this vital issue. It is my desire, desire that this discussion will aid all involved in their pursuit of the truth. It is my belief that one's faith should be based upon the evidence. Though I believe in the existence of the God of the Bible, I do not believe that its existence can be proven with mathematical certainty. However, one can argue to God's existence from premises that are beyond reasonable doubt. The denial of these premises is absurd, forced, and temporary. Therefore, God's existence can be proven with a high degree of probability. 
For example, when we drive our vehicles over cement bridges, hovering hundreds of feet above waterways, we have faith that these bridges will support the weight of our vehicles. This is not blind faith. For there is much evidence that man's technology is capable of building these bridges. Our faith is based on the available evidence, though certainty eludes us. In like manner, the belief in God's existence can be proven with a high degree of probability. It should also be noted that a person may know, may know something to be true, though he or she may not be able to prove it. A suspect in a crime may know that he is innocent, yet not be capable of proving it. Many Christians know that God exists, though they cannot prove that he does. Having said this, I will now begin my case for the existence of the God of the Bible. First, we must briefly define our concept of God. By God, I mean the eternal being that has caused the existence of everything else that exists. This eternal being is an intelligent and moral being. Whatever attributes he has, he has them to an infinite degree. Second, we must find common ground between both theists, those who believe in God's existence, and non-theists. From this common ground, we will build our case. We will examine four areas of common ground. First, the law of non-contradiction says that something cannot be both true and false at the same time in the same way. If something is true, then its opposite must be false. If the non-theist tries to deny the law of non-contradiction, he must first assume it to be true in order to make the denial. Otherwise, the opposite of the denial could also be true. Second, the law of causality states that everything that has a beginning needs a cause. To reject this principle is absurd. If the law of causality is not true, then something could be caused to exist by nothing. However, nothing is nothing. Therefore, nothing can do nothing, hence, nothing can cause nothing. Also, if one rejects the law of causality, then there is no basis for scientific experimentation. For modern science must assume this principle when attempting to discover the relationships that exist between the elements of the universe. Third, the principle of analogy teaches us that two effects that are similar often have causes that are similar. For instance, a watch shows tremendous design and complexity. So does the universe. In fact, a single-celled animal has enough genetic information to fill an entire library. Therefore, it seems reasonable to conclude that since it takes an intelligent being to make a watch, it must also have taken an intelligent being to design the universe. It seems rather unlikely that we could get enough information to fill an entire library merely by chance. Intelligent design is needed. Finally, the basic reliability of sense perception is, is accepted by theists and non-theists alike. Though we can sometimes be mistaken in the conclusions we draw from what our senses perceive, our sense perceptions can usually be trusted. If we see someone throwing a rock at us, we duck and remove ourselves from danger. If we hear the whistle of a coming train, we stay clear of the railroad tracks. And of course, modern science must assume the basic reliability of sense perception in order to examine nature. My case for God's existence will be built upon these four, the laws of non-contradiction, causality, and analogy, as well as on the basic reliability of sense perception. 
both theists and evolutionists must hold to these four areas of common ground. If a person verbally denies these principles, he must still live like they are true. My first argument for God's existence derives as substance from Thomas Aquinas' five ways to prove God's existence. Experience shows us that limited, dependent beings exist. These limited, dependent beings need other beings for their continued existence. For example, I depend on air, water, and food to sustain my existence. However, adding limited, dependent beings together will never give us an independent and unlimited whole. Therefore, the sum total of limited, dependent beings is itself limited and dependent. Hence, the ultimate cause of the continuing existence of all limited, dependent beings must be unlimited and independent. There cannot be two or more unlimited and independent beings, since if there were, they would limit one another's existence, but then they would not be unlimited. Therefore, there can only be one unlimited and independent being. This being must have all its attributes in an unlimited way. Otherwise, it could not be an unlimited being. This being must be all-powerful, for he is the source of all the power in the universe. No other power can limit him. He is eternal, for he is not limited by time. He is everywhere present, since he is not limited by space. He is immaterial, since he is not limited by matter. This being must also, also be all-good, since, since he is not limited by evil. He must also be unlimited in knowledge. Since mindless nature works towards goals, such as acorns always becoming oak trees and not something else, there must be an intelligent designer overseeing natural processes. Without intelligent design, nature's processes would be left to chance. There would be no orderly patterns that could be described as natural laws. Therefore, this infinite and independent being that all finite and dependent existence depends upon for its continued existence must be an intelligent being. My second argument is based upon the argumentation of St. Bonaventure. Whatever began to exist must have a cause, for from nothing, nothing comes. Since the universe began to exist, it must have a cause. There is much evidence for the beginning of the universe. Scientific evidence for the beginning of the universe includes the second law of thermodynamics, energy deterioration, and the Big Bang model. The second law of thermodynamics is one of the most firmly established laws of modern science. It states that the amount of usable energy in a closed system is running down. This means that someday in the finite future, all the energy in the universe will be useless. In other words, if left to itself, the universe will have an end. But if the universe is going to have an end, it had to have a beginning. At one time in the finite past, all the energy in the universe was usable. If the universe is winding down, then it must have originally been wound up. The universe is not eternal. It had a beginning. Since it had a beginning, it needs a cause, for from nothing, nothing comes. The Big Bang model also teaches us that the universe had a beginning. In 1929, astronomer Edwin Hubble discovered that the universe is expanding at the same rate in all directions. As time moves forward, the universe is growing apart. But this means that if we go back in time, the universe would be getting smaller and smaller. Eventually, if we go back far enough in the past, the entire universe would be what scientists call a point of infinite density. 
This marks the beginning of the universe, the Big Bang. There have been two main attempts to refute the beginning of the universe. The first is the steady state model. This view holds that the universe never had a beginning. Instead, it always existed in the same state. Because of the mounting evidence for the, for the Big Bang model, this view has been abandoned by most of its adherents. The second attempt to evade the beginning of the universe is called the oscillating model. This model teaches that at some point during the universe's expansion, gravity will halt the expansion and pull everything back together again. From that point, there will be another Big Bang. This process will be repeated over and over again throughout all eternity. Unfortunately, the oscillating model fails. For there is no known principle of physics that would reverse the collapse of the universe into another Big Bang. Second, current scientific research has shown that the universe is not dense enough for gravity to pull it back together again. And third, even if it could be proven that several Big Bangs have occurred, the second law of thermodynamics would still require that there was a first Big Bang. Besides the scientific evidence, there is also philosophical evidence for the beginning of the universe. For if the universe is eternal, then there would be an infinite number of events in time. However, as Zeno's paradox has shown, it is impossible to, to traverse an actual infinite set of points. Assuming that an actual infinite set of points exists, before one can move from point A to point B, one must reach the midpoint. When moving from that midpoint towards point A, one must first reach the next midpoint, which is between the original midpoint and point A. This process will go on and on indefinitely. Point A will never be reached. Thus, Zeno's paradox shows us that it is impossible to traverse an actual infinite set of points. Now, if the universe is eternal, then there must, must exist an actual infinite set of events in the past but then it would be impossible to reach the present moment. Since we have reached the present moment, we know that there were only a finite set of events in the past. Therefore, there was a first event. The universe had a beginning. It should also be noted that if, if it is possible for an actual infinite set to exist, contradictions and absurdities would be generated. For instance, let us look at two infinite sets. Set A consists of all numbers, both odd and even. Set B contains only the odd numbers. Set A and set B are equal, since they both have an infinite number of members. Still, set A has twice the number of members as set B, since set A contains both odd and even numbers, while set B contains only odd numbers. It is a contradiction to say that set A and set B have an equal amount of members, while set A has twice as many members as set B. Therefore, infinite sets can only exist in the realm of possibility. They can only be potentially infinite. It is impossible for them to be actually infinite. Hence, the universe cannot have an infinite number of actual events in the past. There had to have been a first event. The universe had a beginning. Since the universe had to have a beginning, it had to have a cause, for from nothing, nothing comes. But if the universe needs a cause, what if the cause of the universe also needs a cause? Could we not have an infinite chain of causes and effects stretching backwards in time throughout all eternity? Obviously, the answer is no. 
For we have already shown that an actual infinite set is impossible. Therefore, an, an infinite chain of causes and effects is also impossible. There had to be a first uncaused cause of the universe. This uncaused cause would be eternal without beginning or end. Only eternal and uncaused existence can ground the existence of the universe. This debate, hopefully, is evidence that intelligent life exists in the universe. Since intelligence is found in the universe, the ultimate cause of the universe must also be an intelligent being. For intelligence cannot come from non-intelligence. No one has ever shown how intelligence could have evolved from mindless nature. Morality also exists in the universe. For without morality, there would be no such thing as right and wrong. But the moral judgments we make show that we do believe there is such a thing as right and wrong. But nature is non-moral. No one holds a rock morally responsible for tripping them. Since nature is non-moral, but morality exists in the universe, the cause of the universe must be a moral being. The moral law is not invented by individuals, for individuals judge the actions of others. If morality is relative, no one could call the actions of Adolf Hitler wrong, nor could society be the cause of moral laws, since societies often pass judgment on one another. Only an absolute moral lawgiver who is qualitatively above man can be the cause of a moral law that stands above man and judges his actions. Therefore, the uncaused cause of the universe must be an intelligent moral being. This means that God must be a personal being. I believe that this personal God that exists has not been silent. His actions in history display his interest in mankind. Though I do not see these actions in history as primary evidence for his existence, they do verify the evidence already given. Some of the actions of God in history are the fulfilled prophecies of the Judeo-Christian scriptures, the miraculous works of Christ, and the transformed lives of believers such as Paul, Augustine, and John Newton. God's ultimate act in history appears to be the raising of Jesus Christ from the dead. Evidence for this event exists in the eyewitness testimonies of those who had seen him after his death. Ancient secular historians admit that the early church claimed to have seen Jesus risen from the dead. These historians also admit that those who claim to have seen Jesus risen from the dead refused to deny their testimony even though they suffered martyrdom. Since the early church was sincere enough to die for this claim, their testimony must be considered reliable. Christ's resurrection from the dead is God's stamp of approval on Jesus' message. Two important themes of Christ's message are his claim to be God and his claim to be the only Savior of the world. Though the resurrection is not primary evidence for God's existence, it serves as historical confirmation of the, of the evidence already given. Each of us thirsts for something more. Life never fully satisfies. It is my belief that only the God of the Bible can fully satisfy man's deepest needs. What hope can an atheist offer mankind? Even if he could guarantee us 70 years of happiness, what good would that be when compared with the eternity of non-existence that follows? If there is no God who sits enthroned, then Hitler will not be punished for his evil deeds. Mother Teresa will not be rewarded for her generous works of charity. If there is no God, 
then a million years from now, what would it matter if you were a Hitler or a Mother Teresa? What difference would it make? Would life have any ultimate meaning if there is no God? If non-existence is what awaits us, can we really make sense of life? You live and then you die. There are no eternal consequences. We will all finish our journeys in total nothingness. But if there is a God, then there is hope. The God of the Bible guarantees the defeat of evil and the triumph of good. He guarantees that Hitler will get his punishment and Mother Teresa will get her reward. God gives life meaning. For how we live our lives on earth brings eternal consequences. Without God, meaningless existence is all we face. Therefore, I beseech you to examine the evidence that I have presented. I beseech you to choose God. For as the Christian thinker and scientist Blaise Pascal has said, if you choose God and lose nothing and lose, if you choose God and lose, you lose nothing. But if you choose God and He exists, you win eternity. Pascal also pointed out that if you choose against God and He does not exist, you gain nothing. But if you choose against God and He does exist, you lose everything. Therefore, the wise man will choose God. Thank you, and God bless you. that 
if you want to believe something, it really doesn't matter the quality of the evidence or the quality of your understanding of the evidence. You will simply embrace it. You go, yeah, that, that argument that, that Bonaventure said, yeah, what he said, or, you know, what, what Aquinas said, yeah, that's right, you know, that's, I believe that. I mean, I can't articulate it myself, and I really don't understand it myself, but somebody understands it. So, on faith, I'll accept that that leads to ergo the conclusion that God exists. Well, um, I don't fully grasp it. Um, I won't even pretend to. Um, I do have specific replies to any one of the points, um, and I don't really want to go that avenue. That is the first claim about the law of non-contradiction. It's probably not true that something can be and not be at the same time. Very famous illustrations out of uh, logic, for example. I don't even know if I want to get into this. Um, but uh, you see, I could do the same thing, right? You know, and if you don't believe, um, you're going to, uh, you're not a, a Christian believer, you know, yeah, yeah, he seems to have an idea there about why contradiction is possible. I could refer to the duck-rabbit example, right? There's a famous drawing of a duck and a rabbit. It's a single drawing, right? But if you draw it one way, look at it one way, it looks like a rabbit. If you look at it another way, it looks like a duck. So it's one thing, right? And it's, but it's also two things. It's one drawing, it's two things at the same time. You've encountered other drawings like this, where if you perceive something, it looks like, say, two-dimensional and three-dimensional, and these are, illustrative examples that things can be two things at once, sometimes three things at once, perhaps even four things at once. Um, but, and I got off of specific replies to the uh, causality argument and interject here with human content. Maybe we can get into that. It, it, it might ultimately be interesting. But I prefer to emphasize something else. Um, that Phil's final point about hope and believing. This seems to, to be the crux of it. That is, the fundamental motive for believing, I think, and the fundamental motive for finding evidence, however superficial, whatever sort, to find that evidence compelling, arises out of the hope that we are not set down here, mortal, terrified, without any meaning, uh, without any consolation. Uh, the references to Hitler and to all the bad people. Yeah, indeed, and I feel the same way. I mean, to, to believe that I can sit down in a universe where, you know, the scum don't get their just desserts, where good people who try don't get their just reward, where there's inequality and injustice and meaningless, which, meaninglessness which would never be answered, which you would never be consoled for. I mean, an absolutely horrible thought. And top, top that off with your own mortality, you know, your extinction. Um, very unpleasant. And what I would observe about that, that is a fundamental motive to believe almost anything. And this is the initial point in my talk. That is, what drives us to believe, what drives us to find whatever evidence we can find, be it the analogical evidence, the teleological argument, the watch and the watchmaker stuff, the, the design argument, the cosmological argument, whatever esoteric argument you can find, however difficult to understand, however superficial, whatever, it doesn't matter. I just want some evidence because I really got to believe because I cannot stand living in this world and it's getting more terrifying all the time without some consolation. Um, and uh, I would emphasize that point because just 
because there is that very basic, very potent will to believe does not mean that what you believe is true. And at that point, I would recapitulate the essential part of my talk, or my essential observation, is that for social purposes, for living as beings who have to live among other human beings, we should not confuse that fundamental motive, that will to believe, that terror that we feel which drives us running in the direction of some consolation that we call God or Jesus. We should not confuse that with truth. It might be true. Again, anything is possible. Yeah. And heavens knows, I wouldn't mind being persuaded, pun intended. Um, but you know, it is dangerous, I think. It's just as dangerous as anything in the fascist that we did, I think, and we should explore that. I think it is just as dangerous as anything anyone's ever did to confuse belief with truth. Because when you do, you confuse what might possibly be so with what is definitely absolutely so. And when you believe that you have your your feet grounded in the absolute truth, that's when barbarity happens. Because you don't doubt, you don't question, you don't question your own motives and your own deeds anymore. I'll leave it at that. Dr. John made some real good points. Uh, one thing I'd like to say, though, is that it appears to me uh, that Dr. John confuses Christianity with Christians. Now, as C.S. Lewis was a, an agnostic who became a Christian, and he claimed it was through the evidence as he examined it more and more, he said that the best argument for Christianity was Christians. People's lives would have been transformed for the better. But C.S. Lewis also said that the worst argument, worst evidence uh, for Christianity, actually evidence against Christianity, were Christians. And uh, the point that he's bringing up is that there's a lot of people who claim themselves to be Christians that have done some pretty horrible things. What I want to focus on is the God of the Bible. Does the God of the Bible exist? Not about how rotten can people who claim to be Christian, how rotten can they get? Because they can do some some crazy things in the name of Christ. Uh, but that's not what we're really uh, discussing tonight. Uh, Dr. John points out that it's possible to believe anything. I agree with him there. Uh, but we're, debate, we're discussing right now the issue of whether or not Christianity is probable, and obviously we, we disagree on this point. Now, he did mention in his opening statement that uh, there is, unless I misunderstood him, there is no permanent consolation for our suffering. Uh, that sounds like a statement an atheist would make, not someone who uh, really takes no stance on the particular issue. So may maybe I just uh, misunderstood him there, but I believe that there is permanent consolation for our suffering. Uh, and that's what uh, this discussion uh, is about. Uh, he mentions other religions. Uh, there's not a whole lot of evidence for Zeus. I don't see too many people right now uh, discussing.